Welcome to Crooked Little Girl. This is one woman's story of receiving a crooked gospel that created a crooked life. The quality of this podcast is not professional by any means, and I know it's not professional. I can't hide the effects of long COVID that comes through in my speech sometimes with nerve damage in my tongue. I can't hide the breathing issues from long COVID either, or the outdoor sounds that come and go, or most of all, my five kids that make the noise of 50 people all day long in this house where I'm recording. Still, I hope that you can enjoy the story of a crooked girl. Dear Evangelicals, I'm looking today at the ways that you attract people who are very broken, unfulfilled, confused. I think that's a big reason why, like I said before, the church operates like children are running it people in adult bodies who act like children in the important ways in life. People, even if they're not quite adult children, um, if they have unresolved trauma, like most people do, if they have things uh, that were dysfunctional in their childhood or their current adult lives, if they just feel very vulnerable Maybe they had a basically healthy life um, as far as the important things go, but then they've had a scary medical diagnosis or they have a chronic illness or they've had job insecurity, things like that. They make people crave certainty and crave solutions that are in their control. And I saw this happen time and time again when I was a leader at the church, especially Um, People who would come in and visit, the ones that stayed, they had these kinds of things. Um, They would would just really gravitate towards this idea that there are things to do that are spiritual, that are in anyone's hands. You don't have to pay. You don't have to change in uncomfortable ways. Um, you, You really just need to have faith and do these spiritual practices that are going to solve all the problems in your life. And when the whole premise is based on things like that, that's bad enough. That keeps people in a place of either stagnation or at the worst, oppression or bondage um, because they're not in reality. They're not using the actual solid ways that people should use to get ahead in life or to solve their problems. But if I look under that layer and I look deeper at how people stay in the system, then I see a lot more that concerns me and and really it just makes me so frustrated that I stayed for so long but at the same time, I see why I did it and why so many people did it, why people are still there. Many people, they came into this as children or young adults like I did, and they live their whole lives even though the system doesn't really work. I think there are a few people where it seems to work in their lives and we all look to them. And if I take a different view now today from where I am, I see that those people, they either were born into a family or went into a career beforehand that had a lot of financial security and stability. 
And so if they have certain problems, they can just pay for things easier than someone like me who never had financial security. Um, But also they might just naturally, because of their DNA, their epigenetics, they have better health. And then they can tout it as divine health and they can point to all these amazing things they do that even if they start to get a little bit sick with something, they just do these spiritual practices and like, lo and behold, it's great. I question all of it now. Like, I think there's a natural common sense explanation for most things that happen. I do concede that there were some things that just can't be explained things that I saw with my own eyes and I know that it was God and I like that I I still believe in God I still believe that he can do supernatural things to help us now and then but it, it wasn't at the level that the charismatics portrayed so going back to the layer of the reasons that people stay, this bottom layer um, that drives people to stay when things don't seem to work. When I look back, I, I see all of the times that leaders, not just the very top leaders in our church uh, or in the two churches that I was in that operated this way, it's not just the head people, it's really the people who are very vocal in the congregation, the people who are seen as experts or more holy. So when I say leaders, I also mean those people, the ones that seem to have a handle on how this all works and, you know, whether or not they lead a Bible study or lead something, um, prophetic groups or teams, whatever the case may be, they might not lead any of those things, but they're They're highly regarded, and their opinions are worth more than other people's. Anyway, so if I look at leaders in that sense, I see that one of the things they do is they love people who are healthy and happy and submissive even when their lives are falling apart. They talk all the time about it from the pulpit, in conversations, if someone is able to have any type of suffering, whether it's health, financial, relational, whatever it is, if you can tell people about it with a really happy attitude, then you're seen as trusting God. You're seen as having really amazing faith. You're seen as being more spiritual instead of natural or worldly. So (laughs) people who have a real problem, like maybe they got laid off or something, those people, they might come in and they're really upset at first. And that's okay at first, sort of. I mean, you'll get criticized for being worried at all, even right then, because you're having thoughts that are faithless. But you can sort of have like um, a little bit of understanding or compassion that, yeah, this is scary. Okay, like get yourself under control. If you get yourself into a place of being happy and trusting right away, like at the first time people pray for you and talk to you, then you're held up as an example of having a really Christ-like attitude, having the mind of Christ. They talked a lot about the mind of Christ. That phrase was just always used. 
And it feels good, I think, if you're in a stressful situation, like losing your job. It feels great to have these people enforce these um, these feelings of, hey, it's all going to be okay. You don't need to worry. Like they bring you certainty. They bring you something that feels like a solid footing for you when life is really, really uncertain. The trouble comes if you start to get worried again or if you stay worried, if you don't buy into that at the very first time. Then if you keep saying, hey, this is a problem, you know, if you keep pointing at reality, basically, then they say things like, be quiet. If you say these problems exist, then you're reinforcing them. You're allowing them in your life. So if you say, I have no job. I need money. I'm going broke. I can't pay my bills next month if I don't get a job right away. And nobody's calling me back for interviews. If you say something like that, people, first they snap their fingers all around your head. (laughs) Or they might clap, which is really startling, really loud all around your head. Because for some reason... Uh, snapping or clapping really, really, really scares the demons that are in you when you say faithless words that are full of fear. (laughs) If you're not from these kind of churches, you might not know that. So uh, there you go. Not only does the snapping and clapping really disrupt the demons, but it always disrupted me. (laughs) Even if I wasn't the one that was receiving the snaps and claps around my head if I'm just like in a group talking or praying. It was always very startling. Um, I don't know if everyone feels like that, but I always hated it. And I never did it to anyone. I can say that with a clear conscience. I never snapped at anyone. Uh, So anyway, if you say those kind of faithless things, these words full of fear, then people teach you The problem is not that you lost your job. That was God's opportunity for you to be blessed more. So God wanted you to have a better job with more money, a a better boss, you know, all these amazing things. And what you're doing is you're taking that opportunity, that blessing, and you're criticizing it. You're putting out these words that are like arrows of darkness. And that is why you don't feel good. That's why you're not getting any calls from people for interviews. The whole system, it's so easily explained how this is your fault. And there are things that you could have been doing that would have solved it and kept you in peace and happiness. But then also there's things you could do right now. So of course you have to start by repenting. And there's a long process in repenting for the specific words that you've said, also for the attitudes, for the thoughts, for the ways that you've really hurt God's feelings by doing this, by not trusting him and being in joy, because we're supposed to be in joy while we suffer. Um, When you go through all of those things, if you go through them, if you let people just totally bring you back into what they see as reality and goodness, 
then you can be reinstated as someone who is acceptable and you're not going to contaminate them by spewing out all these arrows of fear. (sighs) But if you keep saying, no, this is a problem, you know, if you don't buy into it, if you stay in actual common sense reality, then they can say, well, you're not being like Jesus. They can use tons of Bible verses to show you that you're really, really dangerous to be around. When I look at this now, it's like they celebrated our weaknesses, our weaknesses as people, especially if we're adults. You know, it's one thing as kids or or teenagers to get this, and, and that's bad, I think, in a different way. But if you're an adult and you are going through something really hard, um, to, to be, to have everything twisted the way that they did, it brings you into a place of feeling like not only do I have to carry this really huge weight of whatever this hard situation is, I mean, that's hard enough for people, But then I have to toe the line in a way where I'm not going to be shamed and outcast and condemned. I have to be aware of all of these people's feelings, right? You're basically, they don't want you to upset them or to be dangerous to them. Threaten them, I guess is a better way to put it. You're trying to take care of all these people when you're the one who has this big problem. And after a while, when my eyes were starting to slowly be open to this, I kept thinking of that verse in James where it says that people, you know, they see someone who's hungry and homeless and these people who are condemned by (laughs) James, they're saying things like, oh, that's so sad. I think they pray for the person maybe, but they basically say, go off, be warm and well-fed you know, and they give no practical help. That is what this was. I mean, this was worse than that. This had a lot of deeper implications, but that's one of the problems with treating people this way. You're just making them worry even more. You're making them work harder and strive and try to protect other people's feelings and comfort And while the person in this situation is trying to protect the other people's comfort, they are staying bound in this place of being limited and powerless and helpless, being weak, but praised for being weak, basically. I mean, it's this backward system where the church people, they say that you're so holy and so admirable if you do these things that really, if you zoom out and you look at what it's like to be a human being who's succeeding in life, those kind of people who are living well in the, I don't know, the reality-based sense, they're actually solving their problems. They're doing concrete things and they're doing things that feel uncomfortable a lot of the time to be able to succeed in life. You know, like I've said before, they they really are taking charge and being responsible and making difficult decisions. So they're also honoring their feelings and actually acknowledging and feeling 
uncomfortable feelings. But then even more than that, they're living in a way where, um, you know, if, if they got laid off, they're doing all of those things to try to find a job and they're not wasting their emotional and mental energy trying to uh, be hyper vigilant about all of their thoughts and be hyper vigilant about their worry level, <laughs> their fear level, about what the demons are trying to deceive them into believing. They're not worried about other people criticizing or outcasting them for having uncomfortable feelings, right? Like there's just so many layers to it, but now. I look back on how I felt when I was the one who was going through a hard thing and I just have such a different view. I see that the church system itself, the standard that everyone has to live by to be acceptable and to be doing their job in the group, it keeps everyone bound up inside of this place where you can't get out and you have to follow the rules and it's exhausting and it's inauthentic it's crippling in so many ways but it also serves to keep everyone in line there's no no doubt no um questioning allowed and that was one of the key things that i didn't realize i didn't notice it while i was the one going through hard times when i was trying to perfectly live out these standards that were so impossible to reach because human beings have uncomfortable feelings when they're going through a hard time. And if you have your kid in the pediatric ICU again, and you're going through the stress, the emotional stress of it, but also the physical stress of not sleeping and not eating well, and just, you know, always being anxious for days while you're there, listening to the beeping machines and watching the nurses' expressions, you know, trying to catch every little micro expression when they look at the different charts and machines, trying to see, oh no, do they look a little worried about that? Or why do they look worried? I can tell that they're not happy about this, but I don't understand what that number means. You know, situations like that that I was in far too many times. I think about that now and then I think, I was just, in those moments, I was constantly catching myself, making sure that, making sure that inside my emotions and my thoughts, I wasn't sinning. I just wish I could go back and tell myself to loosen up, to just be worried, because it's really, really scary to have your kid that sick, hooked up to machines, and it's really tiring to be in that place and you need all the comfort you can get you don't need the added weight of being hyper vigilant like that and you especially don't need the added weight of trying to tell people in your community the only community you really have because you can't have outside people be close to you trying to tell them what's happening and you want sympathy and support, but then you're condemned and just brutally criticized if you seem to be seeking out comfort or support because you're not supposed to be worried. You're supposed to be joyful. You're expected to joyfully be showing every nurse and doctor and resident um, just this peace 
and glory and happiness that is just like, you know, dripping out of you, filling the room, making the atmosphere full of all this happiness. And I could never do that. Now I look back and I'm glad that I could never do that. That would be weird. (laughs) That would be so strange. I think that the medical staff might wonder if there's something really, really wrong (laughs) with me and with our family if I was able to do that, you know. Um, But I had to hide it from the church people or I a lot of times I didn't hide it I was very worried and I was open about it because I felt that that was the authentic true thing and I've always been such a stickler for that but then it just got me more beaten up you know emotionally and spiritually beaten up uh it's so complex when I look back but they really they really keep people towing that line just through all of these coercive ways that the culture operates. I started to see around maybe the last few months that I was in church there, I started to see that everyone is so focused on avoiding fear and pain. They're saying things like, you know, God is over here in the glory. He's over here in the, in the freedom and joy and health. And I started to think, what about all of the Christian readings that I used to love, the Christian, um, the older books and ways of thinking? I mean, some of it very old from the ancient church writings, but some of it like St. Julian's wonderful book about the revelations or Ignatius and how he looked for consolation. Um, just so many of those older, but even more modern things that are outside of this prosperity gospel mindset. I started remembering little bits and pieces. um, And I thought, but what if God isn't just where everything is happy? What would it be like if God was actually with me in this hard time? What if he was with me in my kid's hospital room And he wasn't holding up this like measuring stick to see how happy I am and how peaceful I am. What if it's okay that I'm really stressed out and exhausted? And what would he do for me then? And as I went through that first with a hospital situation, because we were there (laughs) a lot of times through the year, uh, through every year um, with different members of the family and sometimes it was me in the hospital we just had so many chronic medical problems um, and I believe we had all these unpredictable chronic you know unidentifiable things usually I think it was all the abuse all the stress all of the inauthentic living the the whole system from my marriage, but also my church and my family of origin. It it was crippling and it was physically taxing. Anyway, so I started thinking about it with medical stuff and then it moved on to other hard things in our lives. I started picturing what would God do for me in this hard place? I think he would be helpful. He would be encouraging and comforting he would want to wipe away my tears, not in anger that I'm crying them, 
but like a good friend, you know, somebody who's really sorrowful with you. He would stay close to us there. He wouldn't just banish us because we're having these things that are seemingly weak and uncomfortable. He would stay closer to us because we need him more right then. And I started to think it's so much more reassuring and um, it makes me feel stronger, not weaker, to do this courageous new thing of facing these hard things with an honest view of them, thinking God will be here to give me grace and to comfort me, to give me peace in a way. It is true. It's a biblical idea and it's true that God gives us peace, but not the way that this heretical theology talked about peace during hard times. They meant it just in that avoidant way. But the peace that God gives, I found that it was more like this solid feeling inside of myself that I was honestly seeing how bad something was or could become. And I knew somehow in ways that I can't picture, somehow I'm going to get through it and God will stay close to me and, you know, life will go on. The biggest way that I ever saw that, the most concrete way that I felt it, was when one of my kids, uh, the one that was most often in the hospital, he was having really, really severe, uh, his most severe episode that landed him in the pediatric ICU. And I had been through that whole wild ride before And I think I went through it a couple times after this, but this was the most scary. At this one, um, I mean, right from the start, he was just in really critical shape. The medical staff, uh, they were a lot more fast-paced and frantic and, and just like shouting things out around his bed. There was a bigger team this time. He was so tiny in the bed. I think he was about seven and um, maybe five. I forget now. He was just so little and so pale. And I saw the staff around the bed just like commanding, you know, all these things. And they're getting stuff and they're working on his body. And then at one point, one of the people, I'm assuming it was a doctor, said to a, a young resident go stand with the mother right now, go stand over with the mother. I was at the foot of the bed, like not really close. I was giving them space and she came and stood by me. Oh, he said something else like, you know what to do. And so I felt creepy, like, wait, what does she have to do to me? And then they started getting ready, um, to, I I heard them say something about an intubation kit or whatever. And, And so Uh, And then I heard the words cardiac arrest. I remember that. And so I'm in this just nightmare, nightmare place watching this. There's nothing I can do. And this girl who's like in her early 20s is just nervously standing next to me. And I thought, oh my gosh, he might die. Like I might be watching him die. And I heard all the beeping of the machines and I hear people saying that certain levels of things are not good. 
it was just this realization, like this horrible shudder going through my body that almost made me fall down. From I mean, it just was this visceral reaction of, wait, he might actually die. And in that moment, I thought, I need to pray. It was just this like outside idea, almost like from another planet, this word pray. But I couldn't even remember what pray meant. It was like my mind was just shutting down. (laughs) And I thought, how do you pray? I couldn't remember how to pray. I couldn't even remember really what it was. It just seemed like something, some far off idea that would help if I could do it. And I'll never forget what happened next was just a feeling like someone walked up behind me and put their hands on my shoulders like it was so real I actually glanced behind me the opposite direction of where the resident was standing to my left I looked over my shoulder to my right and it felt like someone was just standing right there like slightly to the right just standing right up like almost with their body almost touching mine so close but nobody was there but I could feel this very very warm heavy feeling on my shoulders and I could feel like someone was there And I just felt so much better. I still couldn't think of what it meant to pray. Um, But the thing that came through my mind, it was like an outside thought that came through my mind. Clearest, you know, I, I can't even describe how clear, almost like I could see it. And the thought was, if he dies, I'm going to eventually be okay. I can handle that. I can get through it. It would be horrible and I don't want it. But I really would go on and I would keep living and it would be okay to keep living. I can't even picture what that would be like or how I would get through any day after that. But I just kept thinking that thing like around and around different facets of it. It would end up okay. I would be alive. I would keep... um, keep living with my other kids you know it it was just this like very comforting circle of thoughts about that and luckily they kept working on him and and he did respond to the medicines you know it took a couple days but he started responding to all the medicines and his body was strong enough he pulled through um he came out okay and he actually made so much progress that he hasn't needed the hospital in at least a year and a half or two years now. I mean, that episode was um, several years ago now. And I say all that to say the God of comfort and peace, he came then and many other times when everything was very, very scary, very bleak and I would have felt completely helpless and powerless and alone if I was doing everything the way that the church system wanted me to do it. The way of, you know, just gleefully ignoring all of the pain and all of the, how wrong everything was. Because when you live that way that they think is better, you don't get to stand in that moment and say everything is falling apart everything is so horribly wrong 
I need, I need a God who can come in this moment, in this horrible place, and be with me here and give me some sense that even if it keeps getting worse, I can get through that. I can somehow survive it and go on and life can be okay again. The church system, the evangelical system that I was in, it it doesn't allow for any of the beauty and mystery and hope that there is in, in that place. And that experience right before the COVID pandemic hit, that really woke me up to how big and wonderful God is. It showed me that when you courageously look at the uncomfortable feelings and at the uncomfortable truths about life, you gain so much, not just from God that way, but from growing and maturing as a person and becoming resilient, developing grit that carries you through hard times. Now, when I kept <laughs> when I kept growing and maturing that way and being honest, I partly I was trying to show people this amazing truth. I was trying to be this voice of reason, this voice of of hope of like a, more of a view of of God and how he can help us. So, because I was in leadership, I was I was just excited to try and and display that. But what ended up happening was the pastors and some of the other leaders they wrote me off as broken. And I had seen it before with other people in the congregation who either kept getting worse with a uh, chronic illness um, or they just, you know, for whatever reason, their lives were not happy enough and they weren't trying to act happy (laughs) and avoid it. And so anyway, it happened to me where they just started writing me off as too far gone um, outside of the truth they would say things like, you don't really want what God has for us. You obviously enjoy this fear and um, you're choosing to have a life that's hard. You're choosing to have sickness. You're choosing to be attacked by Satan. But they also shut me out in more of a relational way. They just stopped wanting to spend time with me. It was kind of gradual, but very clear. It would be vague words, being too busy, um, disconnecting, detaching, saying things about me to other people, you know, like, oh, she's so broken. She doesn't really believe in God's power enough anymore. And then not letting me have any real open conversations about it. It was like everyone just kind of drifted back and I couldn't get them to let me near enough to to really give this other view. Um, it, it was just, it was so lonely and life was very, very hard. We had several major medical things going on at the time and financial things going on um, and our 
<laughs> our house that we had moved out of um, maybe, I don't know, recently when that hospital time happened and I started waking up to this truth about God, we had sold or we had bought a house and we were renting out our old house to have some income from it. <laughs> and the people who bought, or I mean, the people who rented the house turned out to be meth addicts and <laughs> they were smashing the house apart on the inside. When they were high, they were smashing the fireplace, um, smashing the built-in bookshelves, breaking down walls. I mean, it was just horrible besides just trashing it, just filling it with garbage. Um, it, it was a terrible, terrible mess trying to evict them, losing thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, cleaning it out personally, you know, my ex and I shoveling out the garbage, cleaning the filth, repairing the walls. Anyway, all that to say, that was what our life was like. <laughs> we were having so many problems on top of problems. And yeah, we looked pitiful <laughs> to the church people. It seemed like we were being punished because we were losing our faith. And that was so uncomfortable. We weren't changing our theology while life was pretty stable. We weren't able to say, you know what, I, th I think I'm going to ponder these nice things about a bigger view of God. <laughs> we were getting to that place because our entire life was falling apart right before our eyes. And I mean, that was the year, that fall of the evicting the people finally and cleaning out the house. That was when I started really getting fed up with my marriage and really really starting to push for how can I get out, um, dead or alive, how will I get out of this, this painful marriage? Um, <laughs> and that's kind of why my theology could shift that much. God had me at a place where everything was falling away. So I was able to look at what could be true and, and find more hope and find things that could rebuild my life in a more authentic way that makes sense, that doesn't have all of the the high standards and uh, snapping and clapping around my head if I say the wrong thing and all of that craziness. Uh, it was the suffering that brought me out of the heresy and into a more sane faith but it was so painful. So evangelicals, I don't think that people have to go through deep suffering like that to find a new theology. I think you can do it if your life is stable. But I hope that as time goes on, that more people like me keep telling their stories. And I hope that things can shift so that if people in a church start doing these kind of things, um, you know, snapping around your head or condemning you if you have any fear. I hope that that becomes such a fringe thing that newcomers in a church would see it and just get bewildered and think, wow, that's weird. That can't be of God. <laughs> that's not how God works. <laughs> and just make their way out the door.
instead of being attracted to this amazing, triumphant faith <laughs> that's seemingly full of only happiness and prosperity and nothing else. <laughs>